Hello, and welcome to the TriDoc Podcast. My name is Jeff Sankoff, an emergency physician, multiple Ironman finisher, and your host, the TriDoc, coming to you from beautiful, sunny Denver, Colorado. Before I start the show, I wanted to get in a couple of housekeeping items. First and foremost, I owe you all an apology. My schedule has been really quite difficult over the past few weeks with a lot of travel and other obligations, and that all conspired to delay this episode of the podcast. I very much appreciate your patience and hope that it will have been worth the wait. Although I was unable to keep to my schedule for the pod, I wasn't completely unproductive during that time. Rather, I was able to get going on another project that I've been wanting to do for some time, and that was to get some video content onto my YouTube channel. For my first offering, I have posted a brief video review of my dedicated travel bike, the 7 Cycles Earhart Pro, and discussed the benefits of investing in a bike like this if you are someone like me who travels pretty frequently and doesn't like to forego the riding when you get to your destination. Of course, there are a lot of ways to transport a regular bike, but my custom, easily packed in a standard suitcase bike is an attractive option, and I give some insights as to why I went that route. In coming weeks, I have additional videos planned that I will announce on my Instagram and Twitter feeds, as well as here on the podcast. To find the video, go to YouTube and search for my channel by typing TriDoc, one word, in the search bar. And don't forget to subscribe so that you'll know each time I post something new. In addition, I'll put a link in the show notes. Please do check out my website for coaching, www.tridoccoaching.com. If you're looking to take your training and racing to the next level, maybe we can work together to get you there. Finally, once again, I'd like to thank all of you who have taken the time to leave a rating and a review wherever you download the show. If you haven't yet done so, please consider it, as this is the single best way to increase the visibility. On today's podcast, Damien Shanks, a former mechanic on Bicycling's World Tour and owner of the Bolter Service Course, a must-visit bike shop according to Bicycling Magazine, joins me to talk about his experiences with pro cyclists and triathletes, as well as his transition to academics and his new life as a lawyer, although he maintains many of the relationships that began on the roads of Europe, North America, and even Kona. The triathlete Rutal returns to triathlon after a visit to Europe for the Spring Cycling Classics. On this episode, I'll be taking you to one of the oldest and most popular races on the WTC circuit, Ironman Lake Placid. There are a lot of excellent reasons for this race's success and continued favored status amongst triathletes, and with the addition of a September 70.3 race on the same route, there are now two opportunities to head to the Adirondack region of upstate New York and take on this challenging and scenic course. Before all that, though, I have a medical question to answer, and this one comes from someone near and dear to me. After a recent 5K, my son and I were walking through the exhibitor booths when he noticed a distinctly medical-appearing one, belonging to a company that offers mobile intravenous hydration services. Why would anyone need that, my son asked me. Why indeed? I answer him, and anyone else who might be pondering the same thing right now. If you are a regular listener of the podcast, then you know that one of my pet peeves is businesses that market themselves to unsuspecting consumers, especially athletes, as offering a product or service that is purported to be beneficial to a performance or recovery, when in reality they are no more than snake oil salesmen, experts at cashing in without delivering. Even more egregious are those that misrepresent themselves as having the backing of medical science or medical professionals in order to facilitate their being able to dissociate athletes from their hard-earned dollars. I encountered the latest example of this at the end of a recent local running race here in Denver. After the event, my family was walking through the Exhibitor Expo munching on our post-race snacks when my son Adam came across the booth for a mobile intravenous hydration company that operates in the city. 
What, he wondered, was this all about, and why were they here? He's only nine, but already he follows after his old man in being appropriately skeptical about these kinds of things. These companies have become quite popular over the past five to ten years, especially amongst college students who tend to have a proclivity towards, shall we say, the overconsumption of alcoholic beverages on weekends, leaving them somewhat under the weather on Sunday mornings. Ivy Hydration Company sprang up to provide a service that was heretofore unneeded to provide rapid rehydration as a hangover cure right in the home. No need to get out of your onesie pajamas or even out of your own bed. Ivy Hydration Services would come to you, administer a liter of normal saline, and get you feeling right as rain. Never mind that a hangover is related to more than just dehydration, and that there's no scientific evidence to support this treatment, hungover people in many cities were all too happy to shell out 60 to 130 bucks to give it a go. But not content with their already astonishing profit margins, a liter of normal saline is very inexpensive, the companies began to develop cocktails of vitamins to be administered with the fluids that, according to them, would add to the restorative effects of the saline and cure hangovers even more quickly and effectively. Again, no evidence, but in their hungover state, none of the customers seemed to be in the mood to check. Alas, there are only so many intoxicated people to hydrate on a weekend, and only so many will do it more than once, most because they wise up and don't drink so much after the first time, and others because they realize that the IV did little more than make them pee and lighten their wallet. So the hydration companies needed to expand their potential customer base. And so someone must have thought, who else is dehydrated out there? And so someone landed on the idea that this should be offered to athletes as well. Google IV hydration companies, and you will find any number of these operations, and invariably they will market themselves as a viable option for athletes who are, quote, having trouble recovering, end quote, or are, quote, feeling a little tired, end quote, or just need some extra hydration for whatever reason. And similar to how they expand their offerings for hangovers, these companies now offer all manner of cocktails for athletes as well, with lots of dubious claims of benefits. So what exactly is the deal with intravenous hydration? Is it a good thing, a bad thing, or just kind of neutral? And what about all those vitamins? Do you need to consider having the local IV hydration truck coming around while you're drinking your morning cup of joe and reading the paper before your long ride? As you might expect, I'm not going to have too much positive to say about this whole concept, so best to keep your money where it belongs, with you, while you listen to the rest of the podcast. Now, there isn't a whole lot of high-quality research on IV fluids versus oral fluids in athletes, but what there is out there is remarkably consistent. Sometimes, even when there is a paucity of data, when it all points in one direction, it kind of discourages doing additional studies, since it's so unlikely to find a different answer, and in this case, there really doesn't seem to be a big problem to solve. I'll explain what I mean by that in just a little bit. Now, the concept behind IV hydration is really pretty simple. By placing a catheter into a vein and administering fluids directly into the bloodstream, you can theoretically restore body fluids more rapidly and efficiently than you can if you use oral rehydration alone. The reason for this relates primarily to the limits of the human digestive tract and its ability to handle fluids. For example, while it's possible to get a liter of fluid intravenously into the body in about 10 to 20 minutes, depending on the sizes of the vein and the needle used, the rate of fluid consumption of the gut is variable and depends on the time it takes for the stomach to empty, how concentrated the fluid being ingested is, and certain characteristics of the gut itself that can influence absorption rates. There's also the fact that of the fluids ingested, only about 50 to 60% is actually absorbed into the bloodstream. Still, 
Even with those limitations, it's possible to rehydrate completely, even when in a significantly dehydrated state, by oral rehydration alone. And so long as a person is tolerating oral fluids, numerous studies have demonstrated that in medical causes of dehydration, such as diarrhea or kidney problems, oral rehydration is preferred over IV hydration in every instance. This is because using the gut has other important effects, such as triggering important hormonal cascades and suppressing the thirst reflex that IV hydration does not. So as I said before, there doesn't seem to be a big problem here in need of solving. We can hydrate ourselves orally just fine. One of the reasons you don't see a lot of research in this is for that reason. There isn't a big issue here that needs fixing. For athletes, though, the allure of being able to hydrate rapidly is enticing. And so a handful of studies have looked at this modality with respect to its impact on various outcomes. I'll address a few in turn. IV hydration prior to exercise has been looked at in a couple of small studies and found to demonstrate no effect on exercise performance. Despite this, I should note that the use of IV hydration is banned by the World Anti-Doping Agency. So even if the studies weren't negative, the WADA ban would still be a pretty good reason not to do this. Believe it or not, IV hydration during exercise has also been studied, using cyclists on stationary bikes. In that study, cyclists received IV hydration or took oral fluids and cycled to exhaustion in a controlled environment. There, once again, IV hydration conferred no benefits to performance. Though I should mention once again that IV hydration is banned by WADA, IV poles are really not that arrow, so hydrating this way while on the bike, again, not a great idea. IV hydration has also been looked at as a way of preventing or resolving exertional muscle cramps, even though numerous studies have shown no relation to either hydration status or electrolyte concentration to cramping. Unsurprisingly, then, IV hydration studies have also not been shown to have any impact on cramping. Hydration between sessions of exercise has been looked at as well. In these kinds of studies, athletes perform exercise for a specified duration to become dehydrated to a spe specified amount and then are rehydrated with IV fluids before doing a second session of exercise where their performance is compared to a group of athletes who rehydrated with oral fluids or with a group who did not rehydrate at all. Unsurprisingly, when compared to athletes who did not rehydrate at all, athletes rehydrated with IV fluids showed a performance benefit, but that benefit disappeared when compared to athletes who rehydrated with oral fluids, showing once again a lack of any benefit of IV over oral hydration. IV rehydration has also been looked at with respect to temperature environments, in other words, environments where it's very hot. And in these studies, there's some kind of interesting conflicting results. IV rehydration has been shown to lower skin temperature in athletes who uh, exert themselves in warm environments, but their performance metrics are unchanged when compared to oral rehydrating athletes. So not entirely sure what's going on there. The IV rehydrated athletes seem to have some metrics which would suggest a benefit, but again, when you look at their performance, there's no difference when compared to oral rehydration. Lastly, IV hydration has also been looked at as a hydration modality after a competition has completed. In marathoners, the use of IV hydration was actually associated with increased muscle soreness and a delay to return to activity when compared to oral rehydration. Now, it should be said that the IV hydration group in this study was not identical to the oral rehydration group. Those who received IV hydration tended to be amongst the faster runners than those who got oral rehydration, so this may have played a part in the findings. But other explanations are related to the need to sit still for the time period for getting IV fluids and other factors that may not have been totally well understood. 
So based on everything that I've said, I think that you'll agree when I say that there's really no role for IV hydration for athletes whenever they can take fluids by mouth. And that leads me to the one time when IV fluids are indicated, and that is when oral fluids are not tolerated for any reason in the setting of dehydration. And in fact, this is exactly the stance that Ironman takes and that many other major medical associations take when they administer IV fluids to athletes at the end of races. IV rehydration is always used as a last resort. Any athlete who presents to a medical tent at the end of a marathon or at the end of an Ironman race is always encouraged to try oral rehydration first and foremost. Only in cases when oral fluids are not tolerated is IV rehydration then used as a last resort. So for many of you who might be considering one of these mobile hydration services, for whatever reason, I'm not here to judge about what you do with your weekends after all. Let me at least help you save your money and not make the call. There's clearly no benefit to anything they have to offer, and that includes all of the vitamin cocktails, which I didn't even touch, but the research is very clear on that as well. Because you can get exactly what you need simply by drinking for much, much less. Do you have a health or medical-related question for me to consider for answering on the podcast? Well, please email it to me at tri underscore doc at icloud.com. My guest today is Damien Shanks. Damien began his career as a mechanic in pro cycling in 2005 with USA Cycling. In 2006, he joined the fledgling Slipstream team and spent five years with them as they grew to the Pro Tour outfit, now known as Team EF Education First Cannondale. Subsequent to his time on the road, he worked for numerous pro outfits on a part-time basis, including the BMC and Cannondale Factory Pro Mountain Bike Teams, the Rafa Focus, Cannondale Cyclocross World, and Noosa Pro Cyclocross Teams, as well as individual support for professional triathletes. Damien has experience working in the Grand Tours of Europe, including the Giro d'Italia, World Championships, World Cups, the Kona Triathlon World Championships, and the 2012 London Olympics. In 2010, Damien, along with another former Pro Tour mechanic, Nick Legan, opened the Service Course, a service-oriented bike shop that catered to high-end clientele in the Boulder area. Nick left the shop in 2012 to pursue a career in journalism, while Damien grew the thriving business, which was named one of Bicycling Magazine's top 29 must-visit bike shops in 2015. Despite this success, Damien took what appeared to be a precipitous decision and closed up shop in 2016 and entered law school at CU Boulder. Damien studied public international law, international human rights, indigenous people's law, legal history, and critical legal theory. Damien was a member of the Colorado Law Review, and in the summer of 2018 served as the legal aide to the chair of the International Law Commission, a suborgan of the UN General Assembly in Geneva. He recently graduated from CU with certificates in American Indian law and international law. And this fall, he's headed to the University of California, Berkeley, to pursue a PhD in jurisprudence and social policy with the aim of beginning a career in academia. But right now, I am very happy to say that he's joining me on the TriDoc podcast. Welcome, Damien. Good morning, Jeff. Thank you for that uh, lovely and quite extensive introduction. <laughs> well, it, if the shoe fits. So... Uh, is it okay if I call you Damo? Because that's really oh, how I know you. Absolutely, it's 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 funny. Everyone in the cycling world knows me as Damo, which is a, right. which is an Australian shortening of my name, um, which I was given I, th- I think pretty early on in my cycling career around 2006. From oh, I don't even remember which one, but some Australian member of the Slipstream Sport. 
So I want to go back. I, I definitely want to touch on everything we just talked about, but let, let's begin right at the beginning. How did you come to the world of pro cycling? Well, I, I grew up bike racing. I, I, I've been racing since I was 14. So what does that put me like? Well, let's just say quite a long time at this point. <laughs> um, so I, I raced through college and I had, I had aspirations. I wanted to be a pro cyclist, but you know, everyone has a genetic ceiling and I was, I was good, but I wasn't quite that good. Um, so I bounced around at some bike shop jobs and there's actually, uh, Mark Legg, um, who I raced against in college. I don't know if you know, Mark Legg, Katie no. Comp's husband, um, who's a, who's a Kiwi and also was a former pro mechanic. Um, a, a chance encounter with him at a bike race, uh, there was an opening at USA cycling at the, um, the Olympic training center down in Colorado Springs for a staff mechanic. And, uh, I jumped at that chance. Um, I worked with USA Cycling for about a year um, with the U.S. National Track Team, uh, running camps out of there. Uh, briefly, I was the head mechanic for USA Cycling, even though I was woefully unqualified at the time. Um, and in, at, at that point, um, let's see, this would have been the fall 2005, uh, Jonathan Vodders, who was running the, uh, the Slipstream team, or right. started the Slipstream team. Um, at that point, it was called TIAA CREF, Teachers Insurance and Annuities College Retirement Equity Fund. Um, they had a track team and, uh, I met JV at a track race and, uh, helped some of his riders out of a tricky situation. Um, and from there in early 2006, he called me a week before the tour of California started. Um, I think that was the initial tour of California. Um, might've been the first one. I think it was the first one or the second one. Uh, but their mechanic had just quit and he said, Hey, you want to pack up your stuff and move to Boulder and come start this race, race with me in a week. And I, I jumped on that and I spent five years, um, with that team, and that was the start of my uh, my pro career. Wow! So, uh, as in so many things in life, being in the right place at the right time, meeting the right people, really important. Yeah, and then, yeah, right. And then uh, you just sort of parlayed that, and just kept going with uh, your meeting different pro people, and then getting to the Giro and all those other high end races, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I did it full time for, for five years. And then after that really burnout, it's, it's quite a lot of work being on the road. Um, as you can imagine, it'd be 200 plus days a year on the road. Um, so about 2010, I was, I was pretty burnt out. So, um, we, Nick and I decided to open a bike shop and, um, I'd like to say it was my idea, but really it was, it was Nick's, Nick had the genesis for the idea of doing a service only bike shop. He had seen one in Australia that was uh, doing quite well. And we thought that would be a, a nice little niche market in, in Boulder where there's so many high-end cyclists and, and such a such a thriving scene here that people really there there was a desire, there was a need for for really good mechanics that could do work quickly, not not something that you have to drop your bike off for three weeks at a time, um, but also at a reasonable price. Um, and so we really kind of filled that niche and and uh, the business was great. Yeah, I mean, as a former client, I could say the yeah. niche was definitely, you know, very much appreciated. Uh, you know, I drove all the way from Denver whenever I needed anything because you knew the service was great. And uh, like you said, rapid turnaround, great price. And the personal part of it was really the best. Um, so I'd love to hear some, you know, funny stories or some things that you might remember from your time on the tour and even from your time in the shop. I mean, the kinds of things that people must've come by with. Uh, where to start. Yeah, exactly. Uh, where to start. <laughs> this is a, a G rated podcast or PG. Uh, you know, there's no rating yet. So I, I think we're good. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, 
I have, I have a lot of fond memories of my time on the road for sure. I mean, a lot of fond memories. Um, one of my favorite writers from back in the day was, um, uh, um, Tyler Farah, Tyler Farah and I got on like a house on fire. Just, geez, just a wonderful person down to earth. Um, it's really funny. By the time you get to the pro tour, most bike riders don't have a lot of an ego, which is, which is odd, but I think it's, it's such a slog. It's so hard to get to that level that, um, any, any kind of pretext of being an ego driven, self-centered person just kind of goes out the window. Um, it's really those mid-level writers that tend to have, uh, have bad egos. But anyways, Tyler is one of my, you know, one of the closest people that I had on the team. Um, there was one time, I think it was 2007 during the U S pro championships in Greenville. Um, there was a, there was kind of a, a fad going around at the time called flipping beds. And I don't, I don't know if you're aware of this. Uh, I don't know. I don't know if it was a long, long standing fad, but, um, we, well, Greenville was a very hilly race. So, um, Tyler wasn't one of the the main favorites for the race. So maybe three or four days before the race started, um, we got a little bit inebriated, I won't lie. And we decided <laughs> that we're gonna, we're gonna flip some beds. Um, so somehow a little bit drunk, we, uh, we talked away into getting a room key for, uh, one of our other mechanics, Tom, Tom Hopper, who, uh, you know, had, has had a long career with slipstream and, um, also with Rafa Focus, he was Jeremy Powers' personal mechanic. So we bust into his room and flipped his bed and this other mechanic, and that was kind of funny. Um, you know, they took it pretty well. And of course, being young and dumb, we were not we were not finished at that stage. So somehow we uh, we we went back to the front desk, convinced them that we were Tom Danielson, who uh, who was one of the team leaders. And this may not have been the best idea <laughs> at the time. Um, so we we managed to get the key, and I don't even remember how. Um, like I said, I might've been a little inebriated. Uh, and so we were at the front door trying to, trying to open up his, uh, trying to open up his room. Um, and the key wasn't working for some reason. And it's this like one, two o'clock in the morning, a couple of days before us pro championships. And, uh, we're fiddling, we're fiddling all of a sudden the door opens and Tom's just saying, it's like, Hey guys, what's up? And <laughs> we we're so taken aback. He was in such a good mood. He's like, what are you guys doing? And we're like, Oh man. <laughs> now we now we feel bad we're gonna we're gonna bust in and flip your bed he's like oh that's funny that's hilarious that's awesome <laughs> looking at each other like aren't, aren't you mad wouldn't aren't you like pissed off at us he's like and he said then i'll never forget this quote he said no i'd be mad you guys are my friends <laughs> most <laughs> awkward silence after that like, okay well good night <laughs> go back to sleep <laughs> And, uh, so yeah, that was, I guess that was one story. Um, that was by far not the only time I've been drunk with, with some of the writers, but, uh, I'm glad to hear that, uh, that goes on because you, you get the sense that it's no, they're, they're in bed at seven and up the next morning at six on the trainer immediately. And that, uh, uh, it's all strict by the rules and curfew and everything else. And, uh, I'm glad to hear that they're, they're having fun because it looks like, it looks like nothing but pain and suffering for, you know, that's, that is definitely a myth. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they're, they're just people too. Some of them super young, you know, they have to blow up to steam and have fun. And, uh, yeah, I've met a lot of great, great people through my years. Yeah. And is there a lot of camaraderie between the teams? Uh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, you know, some people are just jerks. <laughs> There's yeah. no two uh, ways around it, but for the most part, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you're seeing the same people day in, day out for, you know, up to a hundred, hundred days a year at the races. So like, these are people you get to know really well. 
especially among different staffs. You know, I, I obviously had a lot more interaction with other staffs, um, other mechanics, but every day, you know, during a stage race, we'd have to, uh, do the same rigmarole, pack up, do the race, uh, or transfer to the hotel, figure out where the washing was, figure out where the hoses were, what the setup was, where we're going to park our rigs. Um, so these are definitely people that you, you made a, a strong connection with. And obviously, um, Nick was Nick, who I started the bike shop with. The service course is one of those people. He had worked for um, Radio Shack with Lance uh, and a couple other pro tour teams. And when I met him, he was working for HealthNet, and we were kind of on the same the same schedule, running around America, washing bikes and and hanging out in parking lots. And uh, you know, not only not only did I have friends in the pro tour circuit, I would I would say that you know my best friends now are are former pro cyclists that I've. Uh, that I've made connections with. Um, one of those obviously being Alex Howes. I don't know if you're familiar with, or if you know of Alex, he's, of course. A, yeah. he's, he's in a breakaway almost every day. Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of his MO. Um, so I met Alex, I mean, in 2006, when I first started working, he was a junior on the, the TIA craft team. Um, uh, I met him as a 17 year old and he always impressed me with his maturity. And, you know, we, we ended up becoming very close friends. We lived together for quite a number of years in Boulder. Um, and then recently he, uh, he moved to Netherlands, bought a house up in Netherlands last summer. And I moved up there this January. So I'm actually in Alex's house right now. Um, you know, you know, he's probably my best friend in the world. Uh, I, I had the, uh, the honor of marrying him and his wife last fall. Um, so yeah, I was I was a priest for a day. It was pretty cool. Ah, that is pretty awesome. Yeah, so uh, like you say, I mean, it, it's it's the those kinds of relationships from the day in day out kind of grind that uh, really do form the friendships that can last forever. So that's that's that that is a, an, an impressive part of the job, if you will, that uh, that goes on. So that that's that's a really nice story. Um, oh, well, I'm, I'm I'm sure, as you know, as a as a doctor, you know, you really get to know people when you're uh, when you're in a stressful situation, and I'm. I'm definitely not <laughs> comparing bike racing to uh, saving lives in, in the ER. Um, but you know, there's stressful situations and like you really get to know who a person is in those kind of, oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. when you're with them day in and day out, uh, you know, and having to adapt, like you said, and trying to figure things out together, you definitely, that's a stress uh, to itself for sure. Um, what about uh, triathletes? I, I, you know, I always hear that, you know, pro triathletes, and certainly my experience meeting pro triathletes, uh, the few that I've met, they 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 seem to be at a different level. Just they're much more approachable. Uh, mm -hmm. They don't seem. I mean, they're, they're not in the same financial situation that a lot of cyclists are. Um, what's been your experience dealing with them over the years? Uh, for the most part, great. Yeah, I, I think this this kind of uh, well, at least an undeserved reputation I think cyclists give triathletes is, is a uh, complete hogwash. I mean, for the most part, they're all down to earth. They're very nice. They're very friendly. Um, they just want their stuff to work well. And, um, especially at the highest level, it's, it's very, it's, uh, you know, very disparate from the situation of professional cyclists. Professional cyclists have teams with mechanics and the teams take care of all the bikes and they have loads of bikes. Professional triathletes, even at the highest level, um, unless they're lucky enough to have some kind of like, uh, um, industry support, they're on their own and they have their, they have their bike, they have their two or three bikes and they have to take care of them themselves. And, um, I really found a lot of the professional triathletes at the, at the highest level, um, you know, 
the tri bikes are very complicated. They just want them worked on and worked on well. They're not they're not afraid to pay the money. They're not afraid to uh, to do what it takes to to keep their bikes running because it's the tool of their job. It's just the nature of the beast that that I think most bike shops and most mechanics aren't. Um, you know, quite up to the level of being able to maintain a professional tri bike at, at the kind of level that a professional would need. Um, and so I ended up working with a lot of professional triathletes just because I could provide that service. Um, very few of them even got a discount from me. I, I, some I was happy to, some are still close friends. Um, but a lot of them just wanted their bikes worked on by somebody who was competent and who could, uh, you know, stand behind their work instead of taking it to just a random bike shop. And and there's plenty of great mechanics at bike shops around the world. I'm not I'm not trying to, you know, be completely uh, full of myself. But there is kind of a, a trust that you build up and a rapport you build up with with athletes who uh, who really need their bikes to work on their race day because that's how they make their money. Um, so I remember one of the first athletes I worked with was Tim DeBoom. Um, was just a lovely guy, um, really helped me a lot. And we, we started a relationship and that really started me in the tri scene in, uh, in Boulder, which is obviously huge. Um, Tim DeBoom, uh, one of my early customers and close friends is Flora Duffy. Um, let's see here. Cam Dye, I worked with quite a bit. He was a great friend, still a great friend, obviously, um, recently retired and he's doing great in his new job. Um, I mean, the, the list goes on people that I've worked with. It's, it's pretty, um, again, I sound like I'm bragging. But, no, not uh, at all. I mean, uh, it's, it's pretty awesome. I mean, you know, I, you know, I, I, I'll, the thing I, I love about triathlon is, is, you know, the pros race the same course as we do. And, uh, they know that and they are very approachable. I mean, I have, it, it's been one or two triathlon pros that I have, you know, tried to approach who, who really were very standoffish. The mm. vast majority who I've run into just, you know, at random in airports or in coffee shops or whatever, or out on in Boulder at uh, Mary's, you know, stopping to get uh, some, uh, some, new, some water or whatever, they're always just the most amazing people. And I, it, it, so I'm not at all surprised to hear that you had the same experience working with them. Uh, but it's interesting you mentioned Cam Dye retiring because uh, that's the next thing I wanted to ask you about is, you know, with your, if you will, retiring from that scene... <laughs> Uh, which was devastating to me, left me in a lurch. Uh, you know, I couldn't believe you did that to me, but, uh, but that's the, besides the point. Um, I, you know, was law always something that uh, you were thinking about in the back of your mind, or did that kind of evolve over time? Uh, well, I, I, well, first, thank you. Um, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> you owe me uh, no apology. <laughs> Uh, no, not really. Um, you know, around 2015, 2016, I had, I had, uh, I'd done a lot in cycling. I've, I've had a long career. I was, I was making great money. I had lots of friends, a great community in Boulder. Uh, life was easy and, and, uh, frankly, I was kind of bored. Um, I wasn't really challenged that much anymore. Um, and really I was, I was not fulfilled or satisfied with my life. I wasn't, I wasn't finding that I had a lot of meaning, um, so law, law was not something that I thought about for a long time. Really, it, it, it was law or medicine, to be honest with you. Um, and I didn't want to do a, uh, uh, a residency. Yeah, I <laughs> don't that, blame you. And the irony is not lost to me that now I'm, I'm <laughs> continuing in school for another four years. Yeah. But that being said, so it was kind of a fluke. I decided, oh, why not, why not study for the LSAT and see, uh, see what this law career is about? Um, 
managed to get into Colorado law, which is a, which is a great law school. Um, didn't hurt that, that, you know, some of the, some of the faculty at CU law were also my customers, uh, <laughs> which is pretty funny. Um, and really started. So yeah, it was, it was, it was really a fluke. It was really just a, just a way of challenging myself, uh, mentally as much as anything else. And, uh, man, I just, I fell in love with it. And I, 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 it was one of the best decisions I ever made in my life. I don't regret my life leading up to law school at all. Um, you know, I was definitely an older student. I was 36 when I started law school three years ago, um, which is very old for a, for a law student. Um, but I don't regret it at all. It's probably the best decision I ever made. Yeah. You know, you only go around once and I mean, you know, you, you, you do what you can when you can, and it doesn't matter. I mean, I've always said age is a state of mind. It's just a number. So yeah, good for you for, for doing that when you did it. I, I think it's wonderful. And, and I'm curious about the choices you've made. Uh, how did you come to American Indian law? Oh, uh, well, just, just in general. So when I, when I decided to go to law school, um, you know, I didn't, I didn't want just another job where I was making money, right? Cause that's, I was making great money at the bike shop. I had a business. It was, that my life was easy. So I, I really wanted to do something that would help other people. Um, I wanted to make a difference. I wanted to have meaning in my life. Um, I wanted to live for others. So, um, American Indian law, particularly our, our school is an amazing American Indian law program with professors like Carla Fredericks, uh, uh, Kristen Carpenter, who's on the UN's expert mechanism of the rights of indigenous people, our Dean, Jim Anaya, um, whom I'm working for this summer. And is, I, I would consider a friend is the former UN special rapporteur on the rights of indigenous people. I mean, Charles Wilkinson, who is really instrumental in uh, the legal battles in the 70s that really established uh, a lot of the, the precedent um, for American Indian rights in the U.S., um, we just have an amazing program here. So, of course, I wanted to take advantage of that. Um, I was also interested in international law, um, having traveled in Europe quite a bit. Um, I just find it fascinating, uh, international law and international human rights for that same aspect. Um, so... Let's see. It really started in my second year. The first year of law school, everybody has to take the same courses. Um, and you're kind of pigeonholed that way, uh, as I'm sure Kim Kardashian is figuring out right now. Um, but starting my second year, I worked for the American Indian Law Clinic, and I worked on a, a basically a case that, that our dean, Jim and I, had, had initiated in the late 90s um, with the Maya indigenous people in Belize, um, trying to secure uh, legal title over their traditionally occupied lands, um, and property. And so I spent a year working with them and man, I, I just, I just love, uh, I love being able to help people. And, uh, that's, I was helping people in the bike life, but not in the same way, you know, when you, uh, um, you can really make a difference, uh, with, with kind of this, even, even basic legal training. Um, there's a need for that in a lot of these, uh, underserved communities and, and, yeah, man, I found I found a lot of meaning in that. Well, that's I mean, that's terrific. I'm so happy for you. And I'm, I'm happy for everyone that you're helping, because uh, like you said, they are a very underserved population. I see that in my line of work, working at a inner city safety net hospital. And uh, I, I definitely uh, can understand exactly where you're coming from with uh, those sentiments. 
Uh, Damien Shanks is a former Pro Tour bike mechanic. He had uh, a uh, very successful bike shop in Boulder called The Surface Course, and he has gone on to a law career, which I am uh, quite confident is going to be equally successful. He begins a PhD at the University of California, Berkeley this fall, and is hoping to pursue a career in academia. Damien, thank you so much for joining me on the TriDoc podcast today. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks for having me. It's great talking to you, and, and congrats on your uh, on all your successes. Thank you so much. In France, they have a popular guidebook for travelers called Le Routard, and it covers everything that you would ever need to know about innumerable destinations around the world. On this podcast, I have what I call the triathlete routard as a means of trying to give you some of the same important salient tips and tricks to help you, my listeners, navigate some of the more popular races on the Ironman and Ironman 70.3 calendar. Today, I am joined by friend and emergency medicine colleague Jeff Beckman to discuss the logistics, course, and overall experience of Ironman Lake Placid and as much as we are also able Lake Placid 70.3. Jeff raced in Lake Placid last July and placed first in his age group to secure his second trip to Kona. He's had an incredibly successful career at both the 70.3 and Ironman distance, and this year is turning his attention to the international distance, competing at the World Championships in Lausanne, Switzerland, and to Xterra, where he will be in Maui in October for those World Championships as well. For now, though, it's my pleasure to welcome Jeff to the podcast. Thanks, Jeff. Happy to be here. Ironman Lake Placid, it has, uh, it's one of the oldest on the calendar and has a tradition of being one of the more difficult ones as well. Um, what's the situation on signups? Is this one that you can kind of wait to pull the trigger or is this one you really got to plan far in advance? That's interesting, Jeff, because when I was there, I, I ran into several athletes and they were like, well, there used to be a time for Placid where if you didn't register the day of the race for the next year, you wouldn't get in. So certainly things have changed. And actually just looking at it, there is still some uh, openings, which this is a course that has historically sold out, uh, not only just the first day, but usually within uh, 24 hours. So um, which is a shame because the, the, the course is really amazing. And that's my recollection as well. This was, uh, I mean, you know, it was at a time when there weren't that many races. So it's not all that uh, uh, hard to understand now that there are so many choices. And especially at that time of year, there are several other races around. Uh, Lake Placid, not the easiest place to get to. Uh, We'll get to that in a second. Um, But uh, looking at the 70.3, which is in September, I see that one's uh, open as well. Although I should note that both of these races right now, and we're recording this in March, uh, right now both of them are at the final tier of Mm -hmm. pricing. So they're probably approaching full, but there is still time. Uh, So speaking of logistics... How do you get there? I know uh, I'm from Montreal originally, and getting to Lake Placid uh, was a little bit of a chore. I actually drove down there to meet my sister-in-law. We drove, we rode the course one year, yeah. and uh, yeah, it's it's a beautiful drive, but it's a long one. So, how, how did you get there going from Colorado? It is as interesting, yeah. So we did have the option between Montreal and Burlington was another uh, place, and so we wanted to hit uh, Vermont, so we went through Burlington in that direction. And it's amazing how big the Adirondacks are. Uh, that was surprising. The The size of it is it's bigger. It's not technically a national park, but more of a national forest. But the size of it uh, is bigger than Yellowstone, uh, Yosemite, and 
I, I believe Rocky Mountain National put together. So that's how expansive the forest is. So, and, and much of the roads cutting through it are two lane, which means you're not moving that fast. Yes, yes, yeah. yeah so it's uh, but it's amazing undulating wilderness, and and right when you get into the uh, protected forest, it's just a uh, beautiful landscape. So, and how long was the drive from Burlington? So the Burlington drive was approximately three hours. Yeah, um, and it's about the same going down from Montreal. From, from Montreal, yeah. yeah so and and if you up. do choose to fly into Montreal, you of course have to cross the border, which is a, a very small border crossing in Plattsburgh, New York. Uh, it's easy, but uh, like any border crossings, it's still a border crossing. Um, where did you stay? So um, I would recommend to stay at the Crown Plaza, Lake Placid. And the nice thing about it is it's a little bit removed from uh, Mirror Lake area where, where all the race uh, uh, logistics and everything happen there, uh, where you climb up just a really small hill, but you have this picturesque view of Mirror Lake. So when you're up there, you're, you can see almost the entire course, uh, and, uh, and you can see how tranquil the water is. So if you're ever someone that gets a little psyched out by the complexity or the conditions of a swim if you sit up here and look at this tranquil water then it just completely eases any type of fear uh going into this so that was it was it was a nice uh place and it's an easy walk just to, to all of the um headquarters uh, where iron man is housed there so and uh, being a small New England town, I mean, all your options, VRBO or mm-hmm. small hotels, they, they all were pretty clustered together from what I saw. They are, yeah. It is, it is nice to be on Mirror Lake if possible. So uh, my father stayed in um, a town about 15 minutes away. And especially logistics on race morning are very challenging. So that's just one thing to consider is if you have family or even yourself or getting to the start race morning if you're outside of the town it certainly is a lot more challenging so it's nice to be pretty close so as much as you can stay within walking distance absolutely okay that's a good tip uh while you're there are there any must-see attractions or must-do activities before or after the race in the area well the uh I, i felt the olympic museum was just amazing so they had olympics there in 1932 and 1980 and of course, everyone remembers the miracle on ice where the U.S. beat the Russians in the semifinal, which is still touted, I think, as the upset of the century. Uh, and there, they they highlight that that certainly that 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 match, um, and but also just the history of the races there, and and so that's a not miss site. And the easy thing is it's right actually adjacent to where the Ironman Central is, so um, that is pretty easily accessible. Uh, the other things are, you know, the um, looking at the ski jump is also a pretty fun activity, uh, and just you can walk to the top of that and looking down, and it is just harrowing to imagine someone would actually drop into that and jump. So um, that was pretty neat. And actually, I looked down that, and I'm like, you know what? You know, just doing um, a swim and a bike and a run doesn't sound that bad. <laughs> and, and much more doable. And they have both the large and the small hills. They do. Um, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So, so those are those are all um, uh, places that are easily accessible. The ski jump is a is a slight drive, and actually, that's part of uh, the run course where you'll go by it. So, okay. it's uh, it's it's uh, not to miss. Well, let's turn our attention uh, to the course just a little bit. I have heard. 
all kinds of legend about the swim, both uh, because the water is so pristine, as you've mentioned, but I've also heard tale of a almost a lane line that you can follow for the whole course, which sounds too good to be true. But you're about to tell me it, it actually is true, aren't you? It, it is true. And, uh, and coming from the perspective of a mediocre swimmer um, who likes to keep my head down, um, you can literally on the first lap just follow this cable that goes underwater about three or four feet and not necessarily have to sight one bit, which is unheard of. And uh, But it just follows the entire course. Um, so I think... Uh, so it's actually placed there so it's there. for the race. It's there. I believe it's there um, all year round. So this course is... This cable that goes underneath the, the water is there pretty much most of the year from what I've, huh. from what I've heard. Again, I, that's not uh, confirmed, but either way, it just it is it is amazing to have a guide uh, essentially to follow the entire course, which uh, for me, I mean that that was able to record my best swim. Now, the other thing about that is that it's not a secret, so everyone gravitates to where that line is. Uh, So on the first lap, if you can create some space and get in a small group, um, that's really great. Now, on the second lap, then you catch up with all the other swimmers because it is a rolling start. Okay, so that was was one of my questions. It's not a mass start. It's not an age group start. It's a rolling start. Rolling start, start, right. So just be prepared in the second loop. You'll have a lot of traffic. And everyone is jonesing to get close to that line right there that outlines the course. So most of the swim splits are going to be certainly um, slower on the second round. That's you know where the pros were. And even the, the pro that won it, Heather Jackson, I believe, swam just over an hour, which oh, yeah. for a pro is a, is, a, slow, is a pretty slow swim. But interestingly, a lot of the age groupers were... You know, not too far off that. Just and is uh, is it a long beach run in like uh, in between the two loops? Uh, no, so the beach run is fairly short, so which is good. But the long run really happens is after you finish the second loop to get the transition. You do have to run from Mirror Lake to uh, to the town, so that's somewhere approximately about a point two five point three mile. Yeah. So they, the nice thing is at least it's carpeted. So they have a long carpet that you run on, but it is fairly significant. So coming into that race, it is a good idea to practice a, a small run barefoot after you after you do your swims. And it looks like the 70.3 is the same swim. It's just one loop instead of two. Okay. Yeah. Uh, okay. So T1, you just mentioned the, um, the lengthy run into T1. Uh, other than that, any particulars or particularities about t1 that would be different from other races no it's it's pretty straightforward they have so many volunteers there that they mostly have uh, volunteers actually able to go grab your bike and bring it over so okay um that uh you know that wasn't the case in mine because they couldn't read my number because it washed out so <laughs> <laughs> so so that's another thing is make sure that your number is on pretty well so um, the volunteers can help call out your bike but the nice thing about the run into t1 nothing just to mention too it is downhill so you're not having to do a significant climbing so. and are the wetsuit strippers located when you come out of the water or are they located when you get to t1 get to t1 yeah. okay yeah um, all right, so let's talk about the bike. Uh, the bike is pretty legendary. 
mostly for the second half of the loop. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. Having ridden the course myself, done it, I did one loop as just a pre-ride with my sister-in-law who was training for the race. Uh, I I can attest it is uh, it is not to be trifled with. Um, The uh, beginning of the ride is fairly straightforward and there's a very long and fast descent mm-hmm. i wasn't thrilled with the road conditions are the roads open while you're racing so the the roads are open on some parts of the course um and the when i initially looked at it it looked like it was somewhere right around five thousand feet but actually in reality when i looked at my um my my uh, my trip computer afterwards. It was sixty five hundred feet total. Yeah, total. Not, not per loop. It was total. Total. 6, tell, yeah, sixty five hundred total. Uh, and that was with the last year in twenty um, eighteen. They did revert to the original course, so right. there were a couple of small modifications. But in either way, um, the courses go through. I think that the key thing is coming down keen. Yeah. So there's a significant downhill. And um, so being very comfortable with taking a downhill at good speed um, is, is really key. The road conditions, um, uh, you know, were fairly good in my, in my mind. The only problem that day is when, when I raced it, it was raining. And uh, there was also some sleet, so that certainly changed the whole dynamics um, and also made the downhill to Keene a lot more treacherous. But, right. Yeah. But for the most part, the, the, the way that the grade is, um, you can actually run that pretty high and um and with good speed because there is a run out the bottom and the turns aren't too right uh, yeah i remember it being pretty you could see the turns coming yeah so it's pretty straightforward but and then the the climb as you mentioned uh when you come back on that from that loop is up uh white face yeah and so that's where it's just a it's just a long slow climb yeah um and that's, uh, I think, where a lot of people burn a lot of matches. And I would especially imagine it's it's really like you cannot go too hard that first loop. I mean, if you're right. doing the 70.3, basically the 70.3 is one loop of the course. Yeah. So that's going to be a different approach, obviously. Absolutely, absolutely. But you do got to save your legs for that run. But if you're doing the Ironman, you got to get to the top of that hill and then do the whole thing over again. And I just remember there's after the downhill, you've got sort of this long kind of rolling pretty fast straight and then you do this Mm -hmm. long out and back i can't remember what the name of the town is you turn around at this town you come back and then you make this right hand turn and that's where you start climbing and you just climb pretty much relentlessly all the way back to transition for it felt like a good 20 miles um but what i will say is the course is spectacular i mean it's one of the prettier courses that i've ridden on uh how much crowd support is there out there well, I mean, it's just in most of this area are, are, is fairly remote roads. Um, so you'll see some folks as you go into Keene. Um, Hasselton Road is that one where you go out and back. Um, right. And that's kind of the long rolling. And then um, you'll ha- find some folks just there at that junction. Um, but really, the, most of the crowds are going to be at around Mirror Lake. Um, so you do have a lot of time out there. But... The, the good news is it, it's a beautiful terrain and you go over smaller lakes, rivers, and uh, very, very picturesque. And yeah. so it makes the makes the suffering a little bit easier. Yeah. Um, aid stations, enough of them, well-stocked? Yeah, well-stocked. Um, and then being a two-loop course, I think it's it's nice because you can expect and plan where the, the second one is. And 
fully stocked with all the the, the standards and right. Ironman races. So, and then you know, one of the things with two loop courses is there's always the potential for stacking up and drafting. Did you encounter a lot of that? So on on this, I mean, I I didn't, um, and I think it just the, the helpful part of that was rolling start. And so with that rolling start, I think um, it did spread out the course quite a bit. And there was good space um, with uh, the difference between the climbing, the, uh, the, the, the straight rollout, and then certainly the downhill at Keene. There's um, either you're going hard or you're hitting the brakes. And so there, there seemed to be a lot, a lot of space. So not quite the drafting that we both saw at the uh, yeah. Kona World yeah. Championships. Yeah. Any uh, danger points? I mean, the downhill is definitely a potential if you're not comfortable uh, descending. Uh, anything else on the bike course uh, worth noting as a potential danger point? Um, there, There is one point at Whiteface Mountain with a turnaround. So um, that is when you come back and you're starting that long climb that we had mentioned. Uh, there is a, a slight turnoff that you do uh, to Whiteface Mountain and then come back. Yeah. And that is something that a lot of folks, I think, miss as far as how far you have to go up. Right. Um, so uh, that's certainly one uh, area to scout. Okay. Uh, because it's fairly steep up, fairly steep down. And then knowing exactly where that turnoff point is is helpful because uh, the road there uh, is, is not quite as solid as the rest of the race. So. All right. Uh, let's, uh, shift our attention to, well, uh, before we get to the run T2, I mean, is T2 the same as T1? Is yes. it the same location? Yeah, same yeah. location. Okay. And then, uh, the run, uh, also, uh, not noted to be one of the easier runs, mm-hmm. apparently quite rolling. Uh, the 70.3 is again, one loop. The Ironman is two. So, uh, same course. What, uh, would you have to, what kind of advice would you have for people doing this race? So the the run is something I, I felt was very straightforward, and the nice thing is is having the two loops is you get to go through the town twice, and that's where you can really feed off a lot of the energy. Um, the area around Mirror Lake is very um, is not very much of a climb, so where you get the climb is on the way back just before town. Um, when I came in, I was expecting about fifteen hundred feet, and then actually. Uh, my watch said it was closer to about a thousand feet total uh, elevation and climb, and really out there, I didn't feel that it was it was much uh, as far as in regards to a, a long prolonged climb that I had an issue with. the The big thing is is just to save yourself on that last climb in the town because I think a lot of folks start to feel the energy of the town. There's a small climb and really push it and burn some matches. So just take that small, slight climb back up to town uh, at a moderate uh, pace so you don't burn out. And I saw a lot of folks cramping uh, near Mirror Lake because they just took that climb up the town a little bit too hard. And the finish is at the Olympic Oval? Well, at the Olympic Oval. So you get to actually run by the same Olympic Oval that they had in 1980 Olympics, uh, which is pretty pretty dramatic finish. Um, and the crowds are... Are, are packed there and uh and it's unlike any other in north america 
That's great. Uh, looking at the weather, it looks like you had um, really one of the best days, uh, even with some rain, uh, of the last several years. Uh, the high of the day tends to be anywhere from low to mid-70s. This is the Adirondacks, though, as you mentioned earlier, and so it can be a pretty chilly morning. Uh, the lows can be anywhere from high 40s up to, you know, sort of mid-50s. You were really lucky last year. The low was uh, 69, so yeah. you uh, you definitely benefited from a really perfect weather day. doesn't tend to be very windy, although last year it looks like there were some gusts uh, that were pretty, uh, pretty high. The other big thing about the alpine weather is, of course, the risk of uh, showers and even lightning. And I know there's yeah. been problems in the past with the swim having to be either shortened or canceled on one or two years because mm -hmm. of uh, freak lightning storms. Yeah. And that's just something you have to kind of take into consideration anytime you're doing a race in an alpine environment. And looking at the 70.3, uh, less of a track record but uh, over the last couple of years, they've had uh, pretty consistent weather uh, since they've hosted this race. It does start quite chilly in the low 40s, so definitely uh, going to want to have warm clothing for that. Uh, and then the high is uh, high 50s to low 60s. So if you're somebody who does not like to uh, race in the heat, this, uh, this one definitely looks like it could be one for you. Absolutely. Any other uh, final sort of uh, thoughts or tips for this race? No, just uh, just plan to have some time to, to enjoy the area around. And so I think that's one of the magical parts of this location is just the amazing wilderness that it offers uh, in this area. So not to be missed. All right. Yeah. Jeff Beckman is an emergency physician here in Denver, Colorado. He is a multiple Ironman finisher and was the age group winner at Lake Placid, uh, in his age group at Lake Placid, 13th overall finisher last year in 2018. Thanks uh, again so much for being here today on the podcast. Uh, thanks, Jeff. My honor to be here. Thanks for having me. And that's it for another episode of the TriDog Podcast. I hope that you enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed bringing it to you. Links to the medical references, as well as to everything else discussed on the show, can be found in the show notes at www.tridocpodcast.podbean.com. If you have feedback or a question for consideration to be answered on the program, please email me at tri underscore doc at icloud.com. If you're interested in coaching services, please visit www.tridoccoaching.com where you can find a lot of information about me and the services. The music heard at the beginning and end of the show is Radio by Empty Hours and is used with permission. This song, and many others like it, can be found at www.reverbnation.com, where I hope that you will visit and give small, independent bands a chance. The TriDoc Podcast will be back again soon, with another listener question for me to answer, another interview with Tim Crowley, a USAT certified coach and strength conditioning expert, and another episode of the Triathlete Routin, with a guide to the Ironman and 70.3 races in Mont-Tremblant, Quebec. Until then, train hard, train healthy.